Hi, everyone, and welcome to What Would My Shrink Say, a podcast where you get inside the heads of a couple psychologists and see life through their eyes. You'll never be the same. So we had a uh, listener with a question here, which is, how do you use your skills as therapists to get what you want in other areas of your life? Ooh. Sounds Machiavellian. It does. Makes me sound... Makes the question makes me feel like I'm a Jedi or something mm-hmm. that I can just <laughs> use my skills as a psychologist to bend the world to my will. Mm-hmm. This is the delusion I live in. So th- I think that's what this person wants to hear about is like, um, do I mean, we should probably be upfront at the beginning. Is, is this true? Do we have certain skills as psychologists that we employ, um, to our advantage in other areas of our life? Yes. Okay. Give me an example. Um, well, and I will say yes, not that other people couldn't or don't do these things, mm-hmm. um, but I think I've definitely gleaned a few things during my uh, training that, that help and assist me um, from time to time. Um, I think one easy kind of um, low-hanging fruit is predicting behavior. Um, I've been in many a conversation where I've um, talked about a certain context and taken a guess based on um, a sample of behavior I've seen about how a person may or may not react, and and uh, people have been surprised at my guess, and it's turned out to be pretty accurate. Can you give me a story, an example? Uh, yeah, I have a relative who um, was going through some pretty trying times, and given a sample of their past behavior, I thought might lean on some unhealthy coping skills that they'd chosen in the past, and everybody else was like, no, 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 they've put that behind them, it's no longer an issue, and pretty quickly, we all found out that this, that I was, mm-hmm. that I was right. Do you, so there, do you think it's that your other family members were not aware of these past behaviors? No, they knew. Okay, so the the difference was that you were more trusting of past behavior as a predictor of future behavior. I think I was more trusting of past predictor, um, past uh, behavior as as a predictor for future behavior. And I think just as a professional, I was willing to like not have the, maybe the bias that they had as a family member. Uh, because oh, I like think the, I think they were like different yeah thing. I think I was much more realistic about saying no you know I think that this might be an issue and we should be prepared for that kind of the people don't really change thing we talked about a few weeks ago no because <laughs> they definitely didn't have to do those things but they chose them and 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 there's no judgment about that but. Um, to be able to say, you know, this is a realistic concern that we should be prepared for. Not that I was saying this person will do this thing. Right. It was more, right. we should be. It's a good chance. Right. Yeah. Um, so one area that I, I was, I really do not, and we talked about this in an earlier episode to some extent, but I, I don't feel like I often go around turning on my magic Jedi psychologist powers, um, getting what I want out of people. <laughs> I don't think that's true either, Nick. I just think they're on. <laughs> yeah, and so maybe they are on, and I don't. I'm not aware of it. Um, <laughs> but okay, so here's one that is when I'm ever in, when I'm in situations where I'm trying to 
uh, an interpersonal situation where I'm in a conversation with someone um, and I'm trying to persuade someone of something, there are some very specific techniques that you learn about as a therapist, but also practice day in and day out that I think are very counterintuitive, but very effective means of persuasion in relationships. Mm -hmm. So um, the first one is what's called Socratic questioning, which if you ever read Socrates, um, play those dialogues of Socrates, Socrates was really annoying in some ways because what he did, all these people would come up to him with these really tough questions, big philosophical questions. And he never said what he actually thought, but he was remarkably good at changing people's minds because he could show them their inconsistencies, the ways in which the way, how they were thinking didn't really hold water. And so if nothing else, they should rethink the way their attitude about a particular topic or their belief on a certain idea. Right. So Socratic questioning involves asking, never telling someone what you think they should, what you want to persuade them of, but you essentially, you get them to something through subtraction. You, by pointing out ways in which they're thinking about a certain topic is maybe incorrect or inconsistent or um, doesn't really make sense, you sort of guide them indirectly towards a different point. And that tends to be much more effective than just telling someone, no, you're wrong, this is the way things are. And that's done often by asking questions to help them elaborate and discover their theory may be Mm -hmm. wrong. And when they actually walk through their theory and they realize, oh yeah, wait a second, that doesn't make sense. Right. Um, But that's a way more powerful means of changing someone's mind than you just shoving something down their throat. Definitely. Is to help them get to it themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I think something that goes along with that is patience. I think true Mm -hmm. persuasion, it doesn't just happen in an argument. (laughs) You could be really smart and know all your facts and really ram something down someone's throat. Um, But usually, you know, if it's, if it's a significant change you're kind of after, it takes people, it takes time to change our minds often. Um, And I think if you want to persuade someone well, you have to be willing to wait for it. And so as a therapist, you get a lot of good practice in being patient and waiting for change. Uh, Very good. I like that one. Um, And that dovetails into one of mine, which was, um, (laughs) this isn't a skill. It is a skill I developed in, in learning about emotion and stuff like that, but other people do it too. But I think I get more of what I want in life. One of the biggest ways I get what I want out of life is persistence. And if you've ever gone through graduate school, <laughs> it is an exercise in persistence. It has it, nothing to do with intelligence. It is it's not all a, about persistence. I tell people all the time, my PhD was a product of tenacity and persistence, not intelligence. <laughs> I can vouch for that. People. You can. <laughs> I knew I could get your support on this. Um, but what that means, though, is that over time, I've developed a relationship with emotion that allows me to tolerate an awful lot of discomfort and pain. And there were times when I really thought, there's no way I can do X. And now, on the tail end of this um, experience, it was grad school, um, you know, after it all, I can see, wow, you can tolerate a lot more discomfort, awkwardness, embarrassment, 
shame, guilt, sorrow, sadness, you know, stress than you think you can. Um, and so, and, and you realize that those emotions are temporary usually and outlasting them is the way to go. Um, and so, I mean, just the, just the emotion that you undergo to complete a dissertation alone is a learning experience in persistence. Um, and I think I get more out of one of the ways I get things out of life that I want is just through tenacity and persistence, mm-hmm. which I think I learned through grad school. Yeah. Good one. No, <laughs> I, don't, I, I, I don't know that that's what they meant for me to take away from that experience, but it's <laughs> definitely what I took away. So, Oh, and the other part of that was just kind of that pain equals growth. Mm. That that growth, one of the necessary, I think, components of growth sometimes is pain. So your experience and training as a therapist has kind of clarified that for you. So you're able to ach- get more growth because you you know ahead of time it's just going to be uncomfortable and that's not a reason not to do it. Yeah, and, and to help clients understand that as well. Because often clients are coming in because they're in some form of pain. And to help them reduce their discomfort in some way or help them oftentimes they have to come in contact with that pain there's no way around it and so i think it it helps me knowing that i've been through that to to be able to guide somebody else through that process not that it's necessary but it's definitely helpful that that um in session i'm not rescuing them that i know that their experience of pain is valuable and and often effective as a teacher. It sort of sounds like what you're saying too, is that fundamentally there's no difference between emotional discomfort and any other kind of discomfort. Yep. None. Right. But that's not obvious to a lot of people, I think. No, I think uh, most people, their relationship with emotion is, is somewhat adversarial instead of learning to look at it as this is just uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I got another one on persuasion. For you. <laughs> Love it. So uh, something I found that, to be very helpful. And this is a, I don't know, this is a pretty common like parenting hack. I think that you hear a lot, but, um, I think it can be applied pretty widely, but uh, recently my, we were trying to get out the door and my daughter was, um, dilly dallying with her shoes. I think I've mentioned this situation on the podcast before. Okay. <laughs> it takes her a while to put shoes on. Oh yeah, yeah. But this time it wasn't because she couldn't get them on. It's because, uh, there were just so many good options that she was having trouble deciding on <laughs> a pair of shoes to wear. It's a good problem to have. And I definitely have experiences when this has led me to be frustrated. Uh, But more recently, I've learned to apply a principle I I know about because of therapy to great effect, which is um, the idea of giving people choice, the power of choice. Mm -hmm. So we can be struggling and she just won't want to make a decision. And finally, I'll just, I'll go over and pick up two shoes and say, hey, Ellen, which do you want to wear the white shoes or the gold shoes? And she'll, a little gleam will come into her eye and she'll go, ooh, uh, how about the gold shoes? And then she takes gold shoes and puts them on. and Done. Done. Absolutely done. <laughs> so I think not only does this work with toddlers, um, but I think it can be surprisingly effective with other adults too. Um, so for instance, I, I've noticed with my wife and I, when we're trying to decide like where to, where to go to eat or what kind of... Um, what movie to watch on Netflix or something like that. I think everyone knows that experience of like, Oh, you pick. No, I don't know. You pick. Oh, I don't know. And then half an hour later, you still haven't picked something. Right. But it, it, it seems to just work wonders. It, 
if one of us can just say, hey, so here are two restaurants that I really want to try. Which one do you think would be good? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Something about that just makes the whole process a lot, a lot easier. Yeah. So choice, like the power of introducing choice. How you frame. Often very simple choice. Yeah. Um, can be really, it's a very, it's a small thing, but I, I, that's a noticeable. Yeah. I'm thinking of all those strategy. research courses we took on research strategies and how you frame a question and. Oh, how much that matters. Yeah. 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 Demand characteristics. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, you know, I was trained for my dissertation. I looked at specific facial um, expressions of emotion and um, I got training on how to recognize specific expressions of emotion in what they call micro expressions. Ooh. So tiny little movements of the face that denote specific emotional. I'm, I'm winking at as Todd Nick right now. winks at me. <laughs> and we all know what that means. Um, and so I've been able to pick up on that in clients a lot. It's helped me as a clinician because I can see these tiny, you know, expressions of say shame and I can ask about that oh. at that point or I can pick up on tiny facial expressions. Wait, of what's a micro expression for shame? You look down, tiny glances down. Oh. Yeah. Or that's not just, uh, that's unique to shame, not sadness or fear or more unique like, to shame than anything else. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There are other muscle movements associated with sadness and other things. Like okay. That. So, hmm. so, but I can, I also use this a lot with family members, friends, people I interact with. And it's something that because I've just seen it so often, um, hand gestures are also included in some of those. So Ooh, wait, wait, talk about that more. I use a lot of hand gestures. <laughs> what does that mean? Like what's a, a common lot, one that you would see and go, mm, that means something. Well, a lot of people, when they elaborate, will start to use sure. their hands. And, and so, you know, they're really trying to get a point across. So you can just kind of start listening in. They're trying to get your attention. Basically hand gestures are aimed at your attention. So, or at elaboration. So, so, as I pick up on these, I kind of just can get the point that this person's really trying to communicate. They want to make sure I understand. And if I can echo that back and say, mm-hmm, I get it, they'll stop doing the hand gestures so much. Oh, like with hand, you yeah. do with the hand gestures. Oh, yeah. interesting. And so you can mirror those things back. But the point is that, that there's some things I think I pick up on maybe that other people don't just because I've been trained to pick those things up. Mm-hmm. In fact, I watch people's hands sometimes when they talk and they'll notice it and say, why are you looking at my hands so much? And I'll <laughs> say, sorry, force of habit, you know, but yeah. So the facial coding has helped a little hmm, bit here and there. Interesting. Yeah. We'll have to do another episode on that. I'm intrigued. Yeah. I don't know anything about this. No, well, we can definitely not. All right. I got another one. Um, I think my skills as a therapist help me to help other people open up more or faster than they normally would. So as a therapist, some pretty common skills you're taught are things like validation. We've talked about this on the podcast before, but um, when someone's experiencing something negative or positive, to just kind of express that you understand what they're talking about. Not say anything about it or what they should do with it, but just validate it. Um, Which is similar to reflecting. Just to it, It sounds stupid, but just reflecting back what someone said, even if it's in the context of like, what I hear you saying is such and such, or this is really, it's actually, it sounds kind of cheesy, but it's really comforting mm-hmm. because it, it tells the other person, this person is on the same page as me. You're being and, heard. Yeah. I hear I'm, you. I'm yeah. being heard. They understand. And it's safe. Um, yep. Yeah. 
uh, open-ended questions, the value of open-ended mm, questions. I think good. that's a that's a really powerful one actually for fostering intimacy and openness and connection with people. And not as easy to develop that habit no, as you think. No, super hard. <laughs> really, really hard. Yeah. I mean, you, careful listeners probably recognize that we could do that a lot better in the podcast. Right. Um, and then also, Todd, you, you talked about this earlier, but... Um, kind of being okay with emotions. Like as a therapist, emotions are very demystified for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it's pretty, it's relatively easy for me to talk about how I feel, how someone else feels, how I feel in the moment, particularly about something. Um, and that, yeah, and so that's... I like that. I can definitely recognize in myself that I have blind spots though. Do you mm-hmm. think you have blind spots? Oh, sure. Cause yeah. there are, there are moments when, you know, I'm frustrated, sad, whatever that, um, th- there'll be moments where I step back and go, Oh, I'm doing, I'm, I'm like in it. Hold <laughs> on. I need to take a step back. But I notice with, with some emotional experiences, um, th- they're not as easy for me to demystify in a way or, yeah. or to step away from than than I might like. Yeah. And I think everyone has patterns there are certain emotions that are harder or right. easier to deal with but i think in general i mean i talk about feelings all day long so mm-hmm. th- i think that makes it relatively easy for me if nothing else for me to encourage other people in normal relationships to do that so here's a funny thing though because uh, we I, I i go out and, and, and date a little here and there and um i am painfully aware that I am way too comfortable asking questions sometimes. <laughs> and, oh, this come on, this just calls out for a juicy detail. <laughs> Give us a story. Um, <laughs> well, I don't know that I've ever made a mistake here, but I, I, I've definitely been out and, and and been kind of on a first date situation where I can just rattle off questions all night. Oh. You know. Um, and I've definitely caught myself going like, that's the third question you've asked in a row. Why don't you give <laughs> them a breather? And I usually will tell them, hey, I'm sorry. This is an occupational hazard. I can do this. So <laughs> anytime. And I try to definitely gauge like, you know, well, as a therapist, you can ask questions about anything, you yeah. know, and it's not uncomfortable to say, you know, how's your sex life? Right. You know, and, the, and, right. <laughs> and so when you're out, um, so being comfortable about talking about subjects and feelings can work against you as well. <laughs> <laughs> and I, like I said, I don't think I've ever, you know, egregiously aired because of this, but I'm, I'm aware that sometimes, um, the next question I'm about to ask could be a little too much, you know, and, and I've been able to kind of resist that and not do it. But, you know, sometimes a follow-up question that just seems like so golden, I'm like, Oh, can't ask that. <laughs> <laughs> so being too comfortable yeah. <laughs> in conversation isn't always great. Um, the other one that I would say, um, the other benefit I've derived um, would be to understanding behavior change um, on a personal level. So in my in my own personal life, I think I'm able to set a goal, start a new series of behaviors, um, maybe a little bit, um, with a little bit more forethought and knowledge as maybe the average bear sometimes. What's an example of this? Oh, if I want to be more productive in my personal life somewhere or if I want to um, start a project, um, 
I'll often look at like, okay, what are the steps? I'll just immediately go into like, okay, what are the steps? If I want to accomplish that goal, what would I need to do? How would I make that easier on myself? How can I break that down into more easier components? How do I make those things easier for me to achieve every day? How do I schedule? You know, I mean, some of those things, it just becomes more rote, I think, in understanding how change is made um, rather than kind of flailing in the like, well, I don't know how to do that or you understand the technical element or a lot of the technical elements. Steps, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and to be able to, and I've definitely, for example, I, I really want to understand, I want to go to yoga. I think I want to try yoga out. But I realize I'm still in the contemplation stage, <laughs> which is a, a fancy term of the stages of change. But I can recognize in myself what stage of change I'm in. Whether you're ready or not. Whether I'm really ready or not yeah. and, and how ready I am and 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 then to identify what would be the next thing, and am right. I really ready for that or not? Or to be okay, just kind of hanging out right now because yep. you're not ready. And I can recognize like eh. I think that's I think a lot of people w- like the idea of some kind of change, but because they don't recognize that they're actually ready, they end up beating themselves up for not changing. Right. Which of course probably only works against them making that change in the long run. Yeah, that doesn't help much at all. That's a I mean, gnarly, vicious cycle. There's very I've met very few people who are actually motivated by negative self-talk no they're not many of them Mm -mm. and if they are it's it's in the very very short term and the the downsides usually outweigh the small immediate upsides couldn't agree more yeah and so i think being able to identify what stage of change am i in and what kind of behaviors do i need to engage in to really move to the next stage and in some of those processes you know being a psychologist that that is easier yeah not that I'm perfect by any stretch of the imagination. Pretty close, Todd. You're, yeah, you're kind of right. I wish I could argue. but Okay, here's one. Um, avoiding drama. So this question is framed as uh, what skills do you use as a therapist um, to get what you want in life? Mm-hmm. But I think I almost, this almost is more true for me in terms of what I can get away with not getting like what I can prevent from coming into my life. What negative things you can avoid. Yeah. Okay. So a, a really obvious one is, um, well, one, okay, so something I hear from clients a lot is that they will be in some sort of interpersonal situation, maybe a dinner party, say, and they'll, despite their best intentions, they'll get dragged into a conversation that just blows up, you know? Uncle Harry is subtly racist and it's coming out and this has always been the case and nothing's going to change, but my client just can't help themselves and they just get into it and it turns into this giant thing. People leave, you know, the nobody Christmas dinner doesn't happen for the next five years. You know, like right. it just really gets, and they come in afterwards and they know like, ah, I, I just should not have taken the bait and got into that, but I did. So I think as a therapist, um, I'm very comfortable with awkward silences. I don't, uh, I can, I can sit, and not start talking for a long time. So I, I'm, I'm, I feel like that's helped me stay out of a lot of trouble and grief mm. is that I'm pretty good at recognizing situations that there's probably no real upside to me getting into, getting involved in conversations in particular, mm. and then pretty good at staying out of them. Yeah. Like that pull, I've I built up a tolerance to that pulled i have to get into this i have to engage yeah i have to engage yeah um, i'm pretty comfortable staying disengaged hmm. i think 
I think I'm okay at that, but I'd love to, I've alluded to this in other podcasts too. The idea that saying less can be much more effective. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and this kind of goes along with that, that being able to not engage in certain things, um, conversations, relationships, um, events, um, might be, and, and I know, um, you know, you and I talk to people with depression, anxiety all day long. Mm -hmm. The last thing you want is more, um, distress in other people and, uh, other situations in your life. Now life has a funny way of just handing people challenges. And so it's not like you can avoid all distress, but to avoid the unnecessary the degree to which you, you wrap yourself up in right. stress. Right. Um, I think get overly involved. And that's something I, I feel like I directly learned from therapy because as a, as an early therapist, I talked way too much in therapy. And I, I realized that as I started talking less, things got better. Like, like as a general principle, the less I talk, the better. Yeah. Um, which probably sounds strange on the outside <laughs> when well, you're thinking about and, what and a therapist there's, there's does. There's probably but. a floor effect there. But yeah, how do I make what I say matter the most? And yeah. and it's often by not saying too much. Yes. Yeah. And that the best outcomes in general often happen when you either just let people kind of fizzle out on stuff. When I'm thinking, you know, thinking Uncle Harry going on a tirade at Christmas dinner. Right. Or if you really want the best for someone, letting them arrive at it on their own. Yeah. Well, and, and, and I get that from family a lot. They'll call and they'll say, Hey, how do I convince so-and-so of, and you're just like, you know, if I were you, I wouldn't, you yeah. know, I would really just kind of support love, care, whatever mm -hmm. it is. Maybe drop a, you know, um, a thought or two here or there, but let them figure it out. Yeah. It'll mean way more for that person to come to that realization on their own, on their own rather than you kind of, shoving it into their face all the time. Right. Yeah. That's good. You got another one? No. I got one more. You do? Mm -hmm. So uh, we, <laughs> we've talked about assertiveness before mm -hmm. several times mm -hmm. in podcasts. Um, and I feel like maybe, I, I think just temperamentally or maybe even before I became a therapist, this was something that I, I didn't, I think at the time when I was a kid, I probably struggled with this, but um the ability to be assertive, to say uh, kind of a simple definition of that is to um, s speak in a way that's both direct and respectful. So to be honest and respectful. So not mm -hmm. to be aggressive, right? But also not to be passive and avoidant in the way you speak. So just to say what you want or what you don't want in a direct, respectful way. Um, and I think that's something as a therapist, you often, you really have to, get some degree of competence with that. I mean, if you, if you have a client who you suspect is suicidal, you can't avoid talking about that just because it's uncomfortable. Like you have to just say, Hey, are you suicidal? Have you thought about hurting yourself? You can't be afraid to, you can't like pussyfoot around that. You kind of have to learn how to just say things. Or if someone is kind of, you know, starting to tear up maybe and kind of getting sort of emotional and trying to avoid it, you can just say like, Hey, it seems like you're kind of upset. What's going on? Do you want to talk about that? Right. You know, which I think is, a, is really uncomfortable for a lot of people, but as a therapist, you're, I don't know. I think if you're a good therapist, you, you do that. You just kind of have to do that. And that has helped me in a lot of, I, I mean, like just relationships, obviously, like in my marriage, they're 
all sorts of things that are kind of uncomfortable and would be easier to just let go in the Mm -hmm. short term. Mm -hmm. But to just say, you know, hey, this is bothering me. Let's talk about this. I would agree. I think that there are all sorts of really awkward conversations um, that are a lot less awkward that given that I'm a psychologist, um, I had a, a professor in grad school who would give you a term, one word, and you had to take that term, use one sentence, and at the end of that sentence, get to a suicide assessment. So she would say green, and you say green's a beautiful color. A lot of people that are happy, you know, love the color green. If you're not happy, you might be sad, and people who are sad tend to think about suicide. And how are you feeling? Do you ever have thoughts of harming yourself or hurting yourself? Wow. You had to be, you had to yeah. get there quick. Um, but the point was to just make yourself practice being comfortable getting to a suicide assessment yeah. um, so that you weren't avoiding it at all. Right. Um, also, couples or individuals in therapy will often drop hints about their sex lives and problems they're having there. Mm. And if you skirt that issue one time, and they feel like, ooh, that's not a topic that they're willing to oh, talk yeah. about. They're never gonna you will never get another shot at it. So when little hints are dropped, to be able to kind of pick those up. And I think kids do this. Sometimes when they're nervous to talk about a topic, they'll drop a hint. And if you balk at it, they're going to say, ooh, I, I don't talk to dad or mom about that thing. You know, I don't, we don't go there. And so being comfortable with awkward conversations or with strange conversations, I think definitely enhances relationships because when there is something that comes up, you're much more willing to say, let's just talk about this, even though it might be awkward or weird. Um, and so, yeah, maybe that's just increased our tolerance for awkward. awkwardness. Yeah.